Hey y'all, today on We The Black People, we're going to talk about how racism, anti-racism, and racial awareness have changed in the last 90 years, and how that brings us to the current historical moment we're in, where We The Black People can even exist. A huge part of that is the way that the internet has made racism much more visible, but also anti-racism much more mainstream and accessible. We're going to explore all of that with Professor Rob Eshman, who's a social work professor at Columbia University and the author of When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. And to me, it made sense to start the same place the very first episode of We the Black People started, with W.E.B. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction. I brought it up because that book taught me that the answer to who freed the slaves is not Abraham Lincoln. But what I didn't bring up was it opens with a message to the reader where W.E.B. Du Bois essentially says, if you don't believe in black agency and black humanity, you're not going to get this book because he's not arguing that. He's using that assumption as the basis of his book. And 90 years later, my show doesn't have it to the listener, but there is almost an implied one for things like systemic racism and intersectionality because I make this show based on the assumption that racism is systemic and that intersecting marginalized identities like gender, class, and sexuality impact how people feel racism in America. And a listener who doesn't agree with those things might not get this show. And what a time we live in that you can go from the basic assumption that Black people are human to much more complex understandings of racism in America being commonly understood. But 90 years ago, in the 1930s, racism in America looked a lot different. You talk about a survey where white people were actually more willing to say that they would act on racist assumptions rather than actually be racist in practice, which is so interesting. Yeah, yeah. So in my book, When the Hood Comes Off, I start by talking about the book is about how technology changes the way that we experience and understand and respond to racism. Um, but before getting into technology, I start with talking about how uh, racism has changed in the years since the classic civil rights movement or, or since the end of Jim Crow. And so before Jim Crow, racism was legal. Right? Discrimination was the law of the land. And this meant that, that people felt comfortable being open with their racism. And so the example uh, um, that you're referring to is a sociologist who sent a survey to 250 different restaurants and hotels around the country asking them, would you allow a Chinese person to eat at your establishment? And over 90 percent of, of restaurants came back and said, no, we would not. But when they went to all these 250 restaurants with the sociologist with a Chinese couple who were there, you know, that, that they, they were all friends, only one of the 250 turned them away. And so they just showed that people were more willing to admit their racism than sometimes even to act on their racism. Right. And that that is just very different than what we have today. Nowadays, racism is illegal. Racism is taboo. Racism is not acceptable in mainstream settings. It's become more subtle. It's more covert. But then people find ways to enact racist policies without naming them. And so I, I also talk about you know, there's a lot of research on nightlife policies and, and how they can be racist when you see bars or clubs that say no white tees, no Jordans, no Nikes, no flat brim hats. And they're right. They're naming all the things that are associated with black or urban or hip hop culture. And the right. The, the purpose is, is to keep the clientele white. 
I think that 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 really shows us a, a difference in, in in racism now versus then is that there was a time when white people would tell you when they were racist, they would admit to it, and nowadays, folks don't want to admit to it. A lot of times, even right, even even folks who seem to be openly racist in their policies that they support will claim not to be racist, right? Trump saying, "I am the least racist person in the room." I talk about this as as being masked racism. Part of making overt discrimination illegal was also a move towards making talking about race taboo. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting, right? To, to think about to what extent was that intentional? And I don't know that that was like a, a one-day, second-day type of thing. I think that when people think about racism, they think about the dogs attacking children. They think about, you know, people being beat. They think about this ugliness that Americans want to distance themselves from. If we are the land of the free, then we cannot you know, accept something like racism. If, if America is a meritocracy, it means racism cannot exist. So because of something that people want to distance themselves from, I think often folks can get defensive when talking about racism, right? Because when you think about it, I think you're, 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 you're talking about how on this show we, you assume that there is, that racism is structural, that we need an intersectional analysis to understand how racism intersects with other forms of marginalization, and those things are true, but but when we when we have those conversations, we are talking about privilege. I'm a cisgendered straight man, and right, so I have privileges that I may not always recognize until we have those conversations. And it makes people uncomfortable to think about the ways in which they may be privileged or have advantages that they did not earn. And so I think that that's why it's difficult for people to talk about race because white wealth is implicated. Often whites feel like they're being targeted, even when they're not being individually targeted, but by targeting white supremacy and the culture that privileges some groups over others, then right, we are targeting the privilege that impacts their life chances, that reduces our life chances. And that's, that's, that's a difficult conversation for people to have. Well, right. And, and again, so this is, this is, uh, you know, one of the ways that racism has become more subtle is that people can maintain racist attitudes. The definition of racism here being attitudes about race that legitimate or justify or continue racial inequality without ever hating people of color. You don't have to hate black people. You just have to believe that, you know, school funding doesn't need to be equal across the state. And then what that does is that keeps urban schools poor as opposed to right, spreading this this wealth from these taxes around. And so, right. So things like that is, is that without being openly hateful, you can support racist public policy that hurts the life chances of folks of color. Truly, all you have to do is believe that things are the way they are because of like individuals making choices today instead of decades on decades of systems. That's right. And then you add the internet, a place where the things that are often taboo in face-to-face conversation no longer are. The internet is kind of terrifying. It's a place you can interact with like super bold-faced racism, but also is a place of refuge and resistance, which is like a contradiction you talk about a lot in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I started the study by wanting to understand how um, young people of color were being impacted by online racism. I started with the case study of a racist site on a college campus that allowed people to post uh, messages anonymously, right? So the site was designed for people to be able to have difficult conversations without their names attached so that they could feel more comfortable talking. 
um, but it just turned into a, a home for racism and homophobia. And right, and that, that's how it was universally remembered and discussed by the students that I talked to. And so I started the study to understand how do we, right, when dominant theories of racism talk about racism becoming more subtle and massed in the years post the civil rights movement, how do we understand the continuing open and overt and ugly racism that we that is so common in, in online spaces? How does that impact the way that we think about race in our everyday face-to-face lives? And so that's what I wanted to talk with students about is like, what, what impact did, that, that, did this have on you? Um, and I learned that it really was a kind of a worldview changing um, incident for many, right, for many young black and Latinx students where, you know, they may have been having great interactions with, with folks on campus, right? Some people didn't notice as many microaggressions as others. You know, you had folks of color who are in white fraternities and having a great time in school. And it wasn't until they saw that page that they realized like, whoa, right? Because again, this, this was a page that you had to be a student to post on. So they realized when they saw these hateful comments that these are my peers. I thought everyone here was too smart to be racist. I thought racists were the dumb, ignorant people who live in a different part of the country, not the people who are going to this liberal university where I am. And that changed their way, the way that they viewed the world. So that's why I started the study. But as I talked with students, I ended up encountering some unexpected findings, which were the ways that, that really technology was changing how they responded to or challenged racism, how they resisted racism in new and exciting ways that really caught me by surprise. It's not something that, that was being talked about in the literature. Um, and this is, you know, these are things that are kind of predate the, the explosion on Black Twitter of, of Black Lives Matter matter content in terms of folks engaging around the movement for black lives and kind of changing the national conversation. This is just an everyday life. How does being online change the way that, that young folks respond to racism? So what does digital resistance look like in response to masked racism? To start with, right, when we think about masked racism, maybe the most common way that folks of color experience racism in mainstream settings where overt racism is um, not allowed. And, and and right now I'm talking about interpersonal racism, right? Not kind of the most common ways we interact with structural racism, which is a different conversation. But it's usually through microaggressions, which are defined as like they're subtle racial slights. These are things that are slightly racist or probably racist, but you're not sure, right? Things like making assumptions about black person being criminal, right? Black students being asked for ID when they're on campus, Telling a Latinx or an Asian person, oh, your English is so good, right? not realizing this is a third or fourth generation American and English is their first language, right? And so this kind of assumption of foreigner status based on how somebody looks that follows folks. And so these are microaggressions that are not explicitly racist, that, that they may not be intentionally said to harm, but they do harm, that we know that they're associated with worse mental health outcomes and worse performance in school and at work. And the research says that the most common way to respond to racial microaggressions is to not respond. Typically, we experience these things in silence. We are scared to say something because we don't want to offend the person who hurt us. We don't want to make them think that we're too militant or too sensitive, that we can't take a joke. Right. We're worried about an act of violence in response. We're not certain that it was racist. Maybe this person is just a jerk. Right. Maybe they weren't thinking. Maybe they're not an actual racist. 
right? We can't think about what to say fast enough, right? All these things keep us from responding to the extent that right, most people just don't respond when they have these, these situations. And the research talks about racial battle fatigue and how over long periods of time, having these things happen day after day really does a number on our body. This is a big piece of health disparities is our experiences with racism kill us faster. What I found is that online students talked about responding to racism very differently and that a lot of the barriers to responding in face-to-face settings are removed online, where instead of having to think about what to say very quickly in the moment, you can take your time, you can write that message, you can find a source that you want to add as evidence and post it when you feel ready. Right. Instead of, you know, being worried, you know, was this racism? I'm not sure. You can ask someone else or you can see that someone else has responded saying, hey, that's racist and realize, oh, yeah, my experience here is being validated by someone else's analysis. It's not just me who's saying this. Now I'm more confident in the way that I experienced it. Or even maybe the most powerful difference is that instead of experiencing it by yourself, you experience it in a community. If someone makes a problematic status or post, Everyone can see it. And you don't necessarily, if you don't have energy to respond to racism that day, you don't have to because someone else might have the energy. One of my students said to me in talking about someone posting a racist joke online, but then they got clapped back. Someone told them, like, no, that's not OK. Um, and here's why. She said, there has never been a comment like that where someone has not responded. Not even necessarily a person of color. Sometimes it's white folks who are responding to challenges type of racism. And so the online, you have the ability for there to be these collective communal responses that reduces the necessity for any individual to be the one to speak out in a way that is very powerful and can be protective of, of our energy. But then also students feel like it's empowering to be able to witness or take part in these challenges to racism that change norms. And if I could give one example of that, I talk about a white student who made a post to a Facebook meme group. Uh, it was just a picture of a black man who's a dining hall employee reading a school newspaper. And it just was captioned with ha ha ha. And, you know, folks thought that that was racist. Folks thought that that was saying black men don't read. Isn't this funny to see this black working class man reading? And when they made that comment on the post, the poster said, no, 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 this isn't about race. It's about the newspaper. You guys calm down. All right. This isn't right. You guys are making this about race. I think you're the racist because you're assuming that I don't think a black man can read. Now, if someone makes this joke in person and that's how they respond, you can imagine that you got to just shut up after they say that. Once they say, no, it wasn't about race, you have to believe them. You feel pressure to not call them a liar or to call them a a real racist, to call them a white supremacist for it, that you have to accept their explanation that this was not about race. But online, there was less social pressure to just accept that. And you had a number of people who were commenting and explaining how it was problematic. And eventually, the white man who made that post deleted it. And so, you know, what I talk about in the book is that doesn't show that he changed his mind. It doesn't show that he changed his attitude, but it shows a change in power dynamics where typically folks of color feel silenced in mainstream or predominantly white spaces where they are not allowed to challenge racism. But in this situation, they weren't silenced. They were able to exert power 
and force so you know a, a privileged person to take down their post that was doing harm. That is very different than what we have come to expect on college campuses, where we hear stories over and over again in the research journals year after year about students who are you know experience harm in these settings by you know feeling like they don't belong because of these incidents that happen over and over again without anyone ever stepping in, without the school ever making much ado about the problems the students of color are facing, conversations and things that, that they only are able to talk about when they go to the black club at the end of the day or with their friends, um, but they don't talk about uh, out in the open to let people know this is a campus-wide problem. Yeah. Back to Du Bois. You talked about the way that Du Bois had this idea of double consciousness, which is the way that black people are hyper-conscious of how they are being perceived, mm-hmm. not just their own actions. And yeah. you talk about the way that the internet makes it so that white people also have to experience that because in those situations where like a microaggression happens and it often isn't called out, or if it is, the white person's like, oh, that's not what I meant. And that's over when the internet exists and multiple people can confirm what that looks like and how that makes people of color feel. They suddenly have to think about, oh, what I said actually is offensive. It's not something that can easily be brushed off. Yeah, yeah, that's real. That's real, right? The double consciousness is we are affected by knowing what racists think about us. It hurts us. And and Du Bois talks about how it, it prevents us from being whole in an almost spiritual sense, in a psychological sense that we have two minds instead of one because of this knowledge of, of how whites think about us being different than how we think about ourselves. I call it double-sided consciousness when I talk about racial projects online where Black Twitter is flipping the script and exposing whiteness. And they are making generalizations about white behaviors based on their personal experiences as a way to highlight and challenge what white supremacy looks like, what experiences with white supremacy look like on a day-to-day basis. And not necessarily just openly racist things, but showing how white culture, which is often just seen as being American culture, which is the invisible culture that is supposed to be the universal mainstream culture, and pointing out ways that it can be problematic pointing out experiences that for many people would be seen as just being everyday normal experiences and pointing out how no, this is not normal. All right. And so that's what I do. And I think it's chapter six in the book as I take a break from most of the story of the book is driven by interviews with students. I talk with about 85 students around the country, LA, Chicago, Boston, New York, Atlanta, But then I also do a lot of social media analysis of millions of tweets over a decade. And so in chapter six, I take a break from being on campus and move to black Twitter to kind of show the effect that some of these resistance efforts are having. And really just being able to play and interact with the voice was a lot of fun, I think, to have such a, you know, important theorist and and to be able to to try and extend his work. It was very meaningful. I think that, you know, Du Bois has been central to so much scholarship about race. And I and I and I just I love the way that we're able to see Black Twitter push forward and create something new where this really is, you know, something that I could see as being a potential solution to the double consciousness problem. That instead of us having to experience this as individuals, that collectively we can shake it off. Collectively, we can exhale as we name the thing that has been harming us without us being able to talk about it in public settings. So we were talking about like identifying microaggressions, but then you talk about how the Internet allows for like deeper exploration of race and racism, analyzing tweets. You talk about how a lot of 
deeper concepts like systemic racism, like intersectionality, like abolish prisons. Moving beyond just pulling the mask off of racism to actually understanding what it looks like with more depth. Yeah, yeah. So in chapter eight, my last chapter, I look at trends and usage of some key words around racial discourse and how they've been changing over the past decade. So things like reparations, things like abolition. So abolition comes from prison abolition and this idea of the prison industrial complex is racist. The right black folks are over policed, they're given longer sentences for similar crimes. Prisons are inhumane. They don't work at preventing crime. Modern day slavery, right? Um, from the 13th documentary on Netflix to the book, The New Jim Crow, there are examples of critical people who are bringing these issues to the mainstream. Um, but prison abolition is something that has been a far left call. People on the far left are, are asking us to imagine. What would a world be like that did not need prisons? And can we build that world together? And for this to be something that was so far left, right, that the, the abolition movement is behind the call to defund police, this call that was originally connected to the, the movement for Black Lives in Ferguson, but this is coming from an abolitionist call, and it's been watered down some, where some people for defund the police, it means to let's take away a little bit of the police money and give it to kind of anti-carceral social workers to respond to calls about mental health crises instead of police, um, right? So some people want it to be kind of a reform, but it was at its origin, it's about like, look, police don't work. Prisons don't work. Let's burn it all down and find another way to organize our society because this is not working for us. And so for that to be so far left, but now during the uprisings of 2020, about 80% of tweets that talked about prison reform also use the word abolition. And that's crazy to me because this is something that, right, this is something, that, again, that is just so far left. But for it to be brought to the mainstream through activists and educators who are on Twitter engaging in these conversations that are forcing people to think about race in more complex ways. Talking about, right, uh, I'm coming to this podcast with an understanding of structural racism. When did you learn about structural racism, right? Like like people have, right, if you, if you think back, if you know what structural racism is, when did that when did that happen for you? When did you realize that racism was structural and not just individual? Was it a conversation? Did it happen in a classroom? Was it a blog? And I think in a lot of the interviews I conducted with students, the students talked about learning about this stuff when they were online. Like, look, I follow this person on Tumblr and she's the one that woke me up. I had a black student who said to me, I came in here like Stacy Dash. And because I followed these blogs, I'm now I'm leaving fight the power. I'm leaving as a militant. Stacey Dash, you know, is being, you know, a woman of color, but who's also kind of a far right voice. And so this person coming in with, with some internalized racism, maybe, and then leaving with like a, I'm about to struggle now. And it's not because of a class that she took. It's not because of something right, that the institution helped her grow. It's because she found something on social media. And so I think that that is what I try to show is I'm looking at lots of different ways that people have been talking about race and how these conversations have been increasing over the past decade. And with the net result of more people having a more complex understanding of racism. And so actually a, a cool example of this is I looked at, you know, during the, the COVID era when anti-Asian violence was increasing. And Twitter was talking about anti-Asian violence, Twitter conversations about the model minority exploded. Model minority doesn't have anything to do with anti-Asian hate. 
So why was that? Why did that term explode? It's because people were talking about what anti-Asian hate looks like in society. And so where do they, what do they do? They're bringing this academic concept of the model minority concept in order to get deeper about what white supremacy has been doing to Asian folks for a long period of time. Positioning Asians is this mediator between black folks and white folks, right? And so I think that that is just a, an example of how the conversation, when things go viral, it's not just about that incident that went viral. It's about injustice and racism and oppression more broadly, where people are learning. Um, you kind of have informal uh, you know, learning mechanisms online and, and activists who become teachers and educators and who are very intentional about it, right? Chapter seven of my book, I talk about students who develop activist identities because they are getting feedback from the things that they post and they feel like it is their job, it is their responsibility to help the people around them grow. Yes, that really affects everyone. It can start with just like someone calls out a microaggression and then it turns into you realizing that like racism is systemic and that you mm -hmm. just get deeper and deeper. It can quickly grow. I know I have instances where I'll, something will happen and I'll be like, wait a second, was that, did I just, was, did I just, I don't internalize racism, which is definitely <laughs> only because of the internet that I even know to call out my own actions and thoughts, which yeah. is so, we live in such a cool time. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. And, you know, everything you read on the Internet isn't true. But I think that there are lots of people online who are critical and intelligent and who make it their business to be on the cutting edge of what it means to fight for justice, who are putting words to the feelings that many people have had the experiences that many people have had with oppression. And I think that it's just a powerful, powerful place to be. You know, I had a friend of mine hit me up and right, he works in schools and he wanted information on, right, how do you talk to Latinx kids about using the N-word in schools? And I, I sent him the Instagram profile of a black Latinx woman I follow. Like she is continuously putting out content about racism in, the, in Latin America and how that connects to racism in the U.S., in Latin communities. Every time she posts, I'm learning something, right? She has an online course. She takes people to Cuba. And right, this is someone who is an influencer, but who is an influencer who I believe is on the cutting edge of how we think about race and, and how it gets complex, right? That, that, that white supremacy culture is not something that is just limited to, to white folks, that some black folks have internalized it, Latin folks have internalized it, Asian folks have internalized it. And right, that, that impacts the way that we, we deal with each other often in terms of different you know, communities of color. And that gets into a section of your book where you talk about how like organizing looks a lot different than it used to. You talked about what mobilizing and organizing looked like during the civil rights movement and how it's a lot broader and can be taken up by a lot more people now. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think there's one of the, the coolest things about activism and organizing today is the power that activists have to bypass the traditional forms of media. And so I talk about how during the civil rights movement, activists and organizers had to strategize, how do we get media attention? How do we get the cameras here? They believed that if the cameras saw how the police were beating these peaceful protesters, that the American public would take their side, that they would be able to change hearts and minds. But the media didn't always want to cover that. So they had to figure out how are we going to get their attention, right? These things were very intentional. Nowadays, my, my friend Jacob Groshek did some research where he found that in Ferguson, 
the biggest hubs for information sharing were black activists on the ground, not mainstream journalists or news reporting sites. So that meant that instead of activists having to say, okay, what can we do to get the media here? The media was like, okay, who do we need to follow in order to get this story? And that I think changes things is that when you go viral, when you use the hashtags, when, right, like when you kind of develop a following or, or people who develop a following, part of their role is to amplify the messages from other folks is that, right, that we are able to see things that the media may not want us to see. We're able to see sides of things the media doesn't want us to see. And that's something that I, I show my class, a documentary called Whose Streets? You know, it's a documentary about the uprisings in Ferguson, and it shows the news coverage of Ferguson. And then it shows the cell phone footage behind that news coverage. And the news coverage said, oh, these protesters just burned down a gas station. Like, this is a violent riot. When what really happened is that the cops were pushing people into the gas station. They were beating people. They were tear gassing everyone. And then they pulled away. And then they told the news cameras, okay, now go see this aftermath. So they caused chaos. And then they sent the cameras in to go watch the ensuing chaos that they caused. They did not allow cameras to be present when they were enacting violence. But then when you see footage from on the ground, you can see the way the police were acting. And so I think that it is just powerful to show that the truth that the media wants you to see is not, you know, it's not always what's happening on the ground, but through social media, we're able to get our voices out there. And, you know, what, you know, there's, I also talk about a study of Katrina and black bloggers in Katrina. When, you know, the news were talking about all the looting that was going on, the black bloggers were like, no, no, that's not what's happening. You got people here who are hungry and who have been left behind by rescuers. And so, like, we need help. All right. And, and but it, it took black bloggers to be able to bypass and to share counter narratives of what's actually happening. So I think that is something that is so exciting to me is that we are in a moment where our voice is, is you know, like we have the ability to connect with each other across the globe. Yeah, wow. And to go back to the boys one more time, he had his belief in like the talented 10th, that like racism was going to be overcome by like the best and brightest of black people. And we live in a time where it's everyone. Anyone can go online, identify racism, pull the hood off and be an activist. Yeah, yeah. There have been some people who have critiqued the idea of the talented 10th as being elitist. And I think at different points in history, our movements have tended towards elitism, where rightly you look at the civil rights movement and who are the leaders that history remembers. They are the the straight men. And this is another thing I talk about in When the Hood Comes Off. It's about how our current movement is intersectional at its origins and how powerful it is. And the difference were with Martin Luther King, almost everything we know him to have written was written by Ella Baker or Bayard Rustin who, right, this is a gay black man and a black woman who have been largely forgotten by the history. And I think that there are movements now, historians have brought, you know, our attention to them and more and more people understand their impact, but they weren't allowed to be the face of the movement. It also, you know, reminds me of, of Ella Baker's strategy where Martin Luther King was more of a, when he's there, the media is there and he's a beautiful speaker and, you know, his words are poetic and he really gets people's hearts. Of course, he's an important piece. Ella Baker's mentality was about building human capacity and that she wanted to help turn ordinary, everyday people into 
people who were fighting for their own freedom. And so it was about developing the capacity of community members, not a talented tenth of community members, but everyone. Everyone has a place in the movement. Everyone has a part to play. And how are we going to develop this person to be a part of this movement? And I think that right without the scaffolding that Ella Baker built with decades of organizing in the South, you don't see the big events that we remember from Martin Luther King. So there's a couple of important things from that. Is one, this idea of transformative organizing, where what you're doing is you're building people's capacity to imagine a different world and, and building their capacity to become people who are working and being a part of the movement who are showing up. So that, that's one lesson that we need to take. And another is, right, in terms of um, this talented 10th, I think we also think about this in terms of privilege. And do we need only the elites, only men, only straight men to be the faces of our movement? No, we don't. When you look at the movement for black lives, it centers queerness, it centers women of color, it centers black women. And the purpose there is that we are not just trying to attack racism, we are attacking the patriarchy, we're attacking homophobia, transphobia. And when you pull down all systems of oppression at once, that's the only way for us to all be free. And I think that that is a powerful place to begin. I mean, that's another lesson that we, you know, that we can learn kind of looking back is like look at Ella Baker's uh, um, ideas for what it means to develop individuals. And then let's look at what we're doing now, which is centering the presence and the leadership of folks who have been marginalized, not just, you know, by the world, but also in our own communities and our own activist efforts. And this feels kind of crazy, but it does all come back to this show. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel like I'm a product of that history. I mean, in 2020, the world was falling apart. Talking about like what actually happened in history was under attack. And I was like, well, I'm gonna start talking about what actually happened in history and Mm -hmm. just started doing this. And now someone will tell me like, oh, yeah, someone like assumed that the reason why like black people live in poor neighborhoods is because they chose that. But I shared your episode about like housing discrimination. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the world we live in, where the information is out there and people can lead just by putting that information out there and people can learn just like it's it's just so easy to get to the information. That's real. That's real. And I love that. And I right, I think it's important for us to know that it's not just about what happens online in this learning, but this is a starting point that right when you help someone understand housing discrimination, then that's going to change who they are next time it's time to vote that they're going to realize that since this is racism that causes problem, then we have a responsibility to fix the problem. If it was just about choice, that lets them off the hook that they don't have to do anything. So I think that's hugely important. And I, you know, I appreciate what you're doing with the show and then, you know, and, and helping to wake folks up and, you know, and then giving the people um, the tools that they need to engage in debate with people who they know and people who they love who don't think the same way. And so I think that that's an important part of the work too, is that even though that, that this is a show that you say is for people who get it already, that it may give the tools to those people who get it already to help them articulate it for other folks and bringing more people onto the side of anti-racism or we're doing the best we can to, to fight oppression. Definitely. As much as the internet, it can be a dark place. You get into the raw rabbit holes and you're like, oh my goodness, everything sucks. Everything is bad. But the internet also gives a lot of power to people fighting the good fight. Thank you so much. Oh, this was amazing. Thank you for having me. You know, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening, y'all. Your curiosity and commitment to learning that Black history is American history and what actually happened in that history 
is why I keep making this show. So keep sharing the show. Keep following me at We The Black People Pod on Instagram and Facebook. And all power to all people, y'all.